This podcast is produced in collaboration with the Sheikh Zayed Book Award. The Sheikh Zayed Book Award is one of the Arab world's most prestigious literary prizes, showcasing the stimulating and ambitious work of writers, translators, researchers, academics, and publishers advancing Arabic literature and culture around the globe. Today's guest, Michael Cooperson, was awarded the SZBA in 2021 in the category of translation for his book, Impostures, 50 Rogues Tales Translated 50 Ways by Al-Hariri, translated from Arabic to English and published by the Library of Arabic Literature in 2020. The Sheikh Zayed Book Award Translation Grant is open all year round, with funding available for titles that have won or been shortlisted for an award in the children's literature and literature categories. Publishers outside the Arab world are eligible to apply. Find out more on the Sheikh Zayed Book Award website, www.zayedaward.ae. That is Z-A-Y-E-D-A-W-A-R-D dot A-E. Once, having hide to the moot in Maraga, I fell upon a gathering where the talk was all of speechcraft. Reed Reeves and tongue wielders were grumbling that no living white could trim the lore's unruly bow or twist words about his finger as airtide folk once did. Could anyone, they asked, still blaze untrodden wordways or hammer out a leaf writ that forbade being twinned? No, they whined, no reed-reeve of latter days, not even a cunning one with Sahban's tongue in his head and show-speaks ranged in his hands could do better than tear a leaf out of his elder's book. Sitting on the crowd's ragged edge amid the hangers-on was a man of middle years. He was sitting hunkered down as if knocking an arrow or gathering himself for a strike. Whenever a mooder overshot the mark, or drew from Wit's carry-bag a palm-apple that seemed withered, the outsider looked at him a-squint and lifted his nose in scorn. At last, when the speakers had emptied their quivers, a stillness fell where the winds had roared. Then the man pounced. "'You have said a dreadful say,' he cried, "'and wandered well awry. "'When you worship dry bones and grovel before the dead, "'you give short shrift to now and men.' the now and men who are bound to you by liking and by birth. You sifters of speech, high priests whose doom is law, have you forgotten the yearlings and the upstarts? What of their well-hewn words and biting rhymes, their clever kinnings, the leafrits they spin as if from golden thread? Go scrut the elders and their lore. Are their pools not choked with mud and their stock a stumble on a hobble? Yes, the first to draw from a well is more thought of than the ones who follow. But no one is deem-worthy merely by bint of dint of being dead. Among the Nowen men, moreover, I know of one who writs, whose writs are gilded worm-weave, every stroke as bold as a stripe across a cloak. His wordcraft, whether of the clipped kind or of the fulsome, leaves all others speechless and drives the elders from men's thoughts. Even when he spins offhand, he dazzles, and when he says a thing anew, he breaks the old words and leaves only shards behind. 
Who is this word splitter of yours, asked the head of the Maracha Muthol, who was a man of high standing. He sits before you, came the answer, and you're talking to him now. Send me for a run around the ring and be wonder what you see. See here, said the head of the Maracha Muthol. You can call a finch a falk if you like, but it's a finch all the same. In this land, we have a knack for telling fox from finches and cockins and winches. No, none go unbruised to strike at us, and lucky are they who flee unscathed once the fight dust starts to rise. So take my reed and fly before you shame yourself. Who knows my arrows better than I, said the man of middle years. Call no man beaten before the race is run. That was Marsha Link's Quayle, reading from Michael Cooperson's translation of the Makamat by Al-Hariri. Uh, it's been recently translated into English as Impostures, 50 Rogues Tales Translated 50 Ways. And um, Michael Cooperson is our guest on the Bulak podcast today, talking about this uh, really groundbreaking and original rendering into English of a classic of medieval Arabic literature uh, written in the early 12th century by the Iraqi writer Al-Hariri. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm really grateful to both of you for all the work you do and, and for this invitation. Well, we're grateful for the chance to talk about this, and thank you, Marcia, for reading that as as dazzling (laughs) excerpt. Yeah, I mean, there are so many passages that I would love to read aloud. Of course, most of them I would sound even more foolish doing, but... You sounded fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) So just to introduce Michael briefly for those who don't know him, in addition to being the winner of the 2021 Sheikh Zayed Book Award for his this translation, Impostures, he is a professor of Arabic language and literature at UCLA, He's published two monographs on early Abbasid cultural history, as well as several translations. So there's the translation of Impostures, 50 Rogues Tales and 50 Ways, also Abdel Fattah Kilito's The Author and His Doubles, and Ibn Jozi's Virtues of the Imam Ahmed Ibn Hanbal. He has also translated two historical novels from the opposite ends of the 20th century, Zidane's The Caliph's Heirs, Brothers at War, The Fall of Baghdad, which was originally published in 1907, and Khairi Shalabi's Time Travels of a Man Who Sold Pickles and Sweets, originally published in 1991. And in addition to the Abbasid period and translation, he's also interested in time travel as a literary device and is obsessed with Maltese. Well, thanks again so much for for joining us today, Michael, and also for giving us the chance. I had, um, like I think so many readers in the West, including ones who have an interest in in Arabic literature, I had never heard of this author and never heard of this work. And so it was a, it's it's a gift, I think, this, this translation. Um, And I think to begin with, if, if you could just, uh, Tell us a bit about the work and its author um, and its its context. That would be great. Great. So to do that, um, we have to go back first to about the year 1000, when a man named Al-Hamadhani wrote a series of short stories in rhyme that showed off his ability to perform all kinds of verbal tricks. And 
this kind of writing had never been done before. It was considered impressive, freakish, unusual, and not easy to imitate. Uh, and as far as we know, no one really tried to imitate it for about 100 years. That's when Al-Hariri comes along. And Al-Hariri was a civil servant in Basra. He wrote these nitpicky sort of books about other people's grammar mistakes. Uh, and he <laughs> seems to have been a, a, a sort of boring pedestrian plotting kind of character who, for reasons unknown, decided that he was going to try to meet this challenge of matching the work of Al-Hamadhani, his predecessor. The difference was that Hamadhani was famous for being able to improvise. He could even improvise texts that made sense forwards and backwards. Um, and he could improvise, he could do it on topics suggested by the audience. So it wasn't as if he would memorize them ahead of time. Um, so he had this gift for spontaneous composition. Hariri, on the other hand, uh, as I said, was this plotting sort of fellow who, by his own admission, had to sit and scratch out page after page after page uh, and pull. he would pull at his hair in frustration as he worked to the point where they said he depilated himself. I mean, he removed his beard uh, because of this yanking that he was doing. Uh, and when on one occasion he was asked to improvise a story, he couldn't. He just gave up in shame and ran out of the room. Um, so this is the challenger. This was the guy who um, set out to match Al-Hamadhani and Hariri eventually did it. Uh, and he did it by working uh, in a sort of solitary, miserable way for many years and finally emerged uh, with this manuscript, which he took to Baghdad and read aloud, no doubt in a state of extreme nervousness, um, and managed to win over all of the arbiters of taste in Baghdad at the time. So from that moment, that happened in 1111, from that moment... Uh, the maqamat became this, uh, his maqamat, uh, his, his impostors, became a, a, a kind of a, a symbol of proper Arabic. And uh, strangely enough, even a textbook for learning Arabic, despite the fact that it's extremely complex, difficult to read, in rhyme, full of wordplay, uh, and was probably the most popular work of secular literature in Arabic down to about 1800. Uh, as you've pointed out, though, uh, mostly because people in the Nahda, in the in the Arabic, uh, you know, nineteenth, twentieth century Renaissance of Arabic writing, condemned this style as being baroque and effusive and prolix and all about form, not to do with content. Uh, and so he became a kind of symbol of this decadent, um, uh, you know, decadent Oriental splendor in a sense, and. So he was banished from the curriculum, essentially. And um, when I told people in the Emirates and elsewhere that I was working on this a few years ago, I would say I was working on Maqamat al-Hariri. Uh, and they thought I was saying Maqalat al-Hariri b'ta'alibnan, meaning the, the letters of the former president of Lebanon, because that's the only Hariri they knew. Um, so so it's I'm, I'm really delighted to have uh, also brought this back, I hope, to the awareness of readers in Arabic, because when you present this kind of thing to native speakers who haven't read it before, you know, they look at it and they're puzzled and then they start laughing and they enjoy it um, because it's got rhythm. It sings. Um, and, and it's an experience that I think many of them associate, uh, you know, with school maybe. 
um, which is the only place that they would have read a little bit of it at some point, perhaps. Um, so I'm happy to have brought it into Arabic as well as English. Um, and obviously it, it exists in Arabic, but it was, I think that it's nice to just, I think, remind people that this was really a big deal once, this kind of writing. And uh, and it's not something that we lack in Western literatures. Um, as Marcia has mentioned to me, um, the Ulipo in France was doing very much the same thing in the mid-20th century. Uh, so I think there are some points of connection, even with something that may seem at first a little obscure. So I, I'm just curious, it, you mentioned in your introduction at, at one point that because the kinds of texts that he wrote, or maybe it was Abdel Fattah Kilito, I can't remember, because the kind of texts that he wrote were so, di- before this, were so different, and because he he couldn't improvise and he didn't have this kind of self-presentation, um, people in the beginning thought that he was a fraud, that he'd stolen this manuscript. Did people continue to think this, or was that just sort of a momentary thing? I think they didn't continue to think it because the the legend has it that he wrote 40 maqamat because Al-Hamadhani before him was credited with 40 maqamat. And he was then asked to produce one spontaneously. He couldn't. He was ashamed. But then he said, I will produce 10 of them if you leave me alone. So then he went back into his little room and then he wrote 10 more and came out with them. And so at that point, people realized that, yeah, he could do it. He just couldn't do it in person which is actually an interesting thing historically because it, it's one of the signals that we're shifting from or that we're inhabiting this space uh, that Shaka Turawa talks about um, between a literate culture and an oral culture, that um, there was an expectation that authors could perform their works. But what Hariri says, you know what? Uh, no, actually, I can do it in, in writing, but I can't do it in person. And when he had his works read in Baghdad, he actually asked a friend to read it for him. Uh, so uh, this is something that signals that, yeah, he's conceding something to orality, but ultimately he's, um, he's also uh, thinking about texts as visual artifacts as well. And that's something that he's certainly not the first to do, uh, but it's something that um, let's say adds a twist to the traditional notion of the author orating in the mosque or being able to uh, shine in a majlis without preparation. Well, as as you explain, like the original meaning of the word makamat is linked to the idea of like standing up in, in public and, and performing, right? And I, I, what I also think is interesting is that the framing device for this, and, and we'll get into this, is that there's, there's a narrator and who keeps encountering the protagonist um, who is this sort of mysterious, shape-shifting rogue who has these powers of language, this Abu Zayd. And in the, in the stories, it's happening orally. So it's a text in which it's, it's been written, it's taken time to write, but then like in the actual, in each imposture, it's presented as if he's doing it extemporaneously, right? Like Yeah, yeah. So you actually have kind of both in there. There's the idea that he's performing these incredible verbal feats with which he sort of dazzles or deceives or, you know, somehow gets hospitality, gets money from various people. Um, uh, but, uh, but then, in fact, we know that they were painstakingly composed. That's one of the touching and poignant things about it is 
here's a man who cannot do this in real life, writing story after story about someone whose superpower is that he can do it. And, you know, it may be, and this is very speculative, but it, it may be that he, in a way, is, is bidding farewell to this oral culture of spontaneity and eloquence, that he's sort of signaling that, you know what, it's, it's really not happening anymore the way it did. And this may or may not have to do with the fact that we have increasing numbers of non-native speakers learning Arabic at this point. And, um, you know, spontaneous eloquence on any topic at the drop of a hat uh, was not something that was available to everyone anymore. And so even though he was, he is reportedly was of Arab origin or a native speaker of the language, there is something, uh, there's a concession in a sense to non-native speakers that, um, that, that we can perform in Arabic. It's just that we need to prepare, that it's not the same as being a Bedouin or a native speaker, um, that we can do it. It's just, it's a matter of staying up late and, you know, crossing out page after page. <laughs> um, and so there's there's a kind of, despite the sort of terror that Abu Zaid inspires with his oratory, the, the work as a whole, I think, is a concession maybe to the, 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 the needs of non-natives who are becoming part of this community. Well, there's so much ambivalence in that character too. I mean, that I'd like to talk a bit about the, the Abu Zaid figure, the, 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 this, this figure who keeps being recognized in story after story by the narrator once he performs these like dazzling feats with, with language. Um, because he's sort of a very complicated kind of anti-hero um, and, and very variable from, from story to story. He is, uh, I mean, Daniel Beaumont, in a very perceptive article written about the Maqamat, says that he's the materialization of a function, uh, by which I understand he means essentially that Abu Zaid represents language itself, that he's mutable and variable and assumes various guises. And in the course of the stories, he appears as a young man, as an old man, as a woman once. Um, he at one point claims not to have a family. Uh, a woman identified as his wife appears in four of the episodes. He claims not to have a son. A person identified as his son appears in at least three episodes. Uh, so there is this uh, evanescent or ungraspable uh, character that he has. And then when you combine that with the fact of this narrator who continues meeting him unexpectedly in place after place, each of the maqamat is situated in a different city from uh, the far west, uh, the Maghrib, to the far east. And I think Samarkand is the farthest uh, farthest east. And so the narrator, Al-Harith, appears in the town, uh, generally joins a gathering of learned people and... Uh, is surprised to find this shabby stranger who appears and then uh, it, uh, demonstrates greater knowledge of whatever the obscure topic is that they're talking about than anyone present. And this scenario is repeated over and over. And so the implausibility is that, you know, first of all, that they would continue meeting like this, but that Al-Harith wouldn't recognize Abu Zaid. And when you combine that with another strange fact that I haven't seen actually noted anywhere, um, I mean, there's been all kinds of brilliant criticism uh, on the Maqamat by Abdel Fattah uh, Kleto, as you mentioned, also uh, Katya Zakharia, 
who is at the University of Lyon, who's written a fantastic book, with, with, with which I disagree, but it's a fantastic book uh, on the maqamat. Uh, they haven't, I don't think that they point out that al-Harith himself is never moved to tears by Abu Zaid's sermons, which are supposed to move the audience to tears. So despite Abu Zaid's claim, despite al-Harith's claim, the narrator's claim, that he is seeking eloquence, um, and the fact that his hero is a man who produces sermons a good deal of the time, uh, al-Hadith is never actually moved by them. And so the most economical explanation for all of this is that they're actually the same person, that we're dealing with a schizophrenic author or a schizophrenic character, that, that Abu Zayd and al-Hadith are simply two parts of the same divided personality. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, at one point you likened it to Watson and, and Holmes, did you not? Right, yeah. There's there's a lot of interesting parallels. There's Watson and Holmes. There's Johnson and Boswell. Um, but it may be actually. But but uh, Professor Kaleto says Jekyll and Hyde, which may right, be the most yeah, opposite yeah. because they're actually the same person, right? Right. Um, I I mean I also found in the in the discussion of the of the book and the introduction, I was really struck by this idea of yes. So this is a book. You both say it in in a way. Abdel Fattah Kalito says the protagonist of this book is adab, is literature, and um, that Abu Zaid is is sort of a personification of all that language can do, and that there's something both miraculous and deceitful about him. So th- that that it's both like very impressive what he does, and yet somehow disappointing, and and you talk about this edge of sadness that's underneath all the like humor and, and, uh, and sort of uh, amazement of these performances. And I thought that was super interesting. You know, I think uh, Daniel Beaumont again puts it very well when he says that when you focus so uh, intensely on language for its own sake and form and rhyme and palindrome and riddle and all of these uh, kinds of formal manipulations, the relation between the signifier and the signified uh, slips away. And so you're in a world where language and reality are no longer connected. And uh, one can imagine that that might be liberating, but I think it can also be terrifying. And one senses that, at least it's what I sense from the original. There's a certain, there's a certain terror of the abyss. I mean, you realize that you've got this, wonderfully complex and supple instrument to negotiate with reality, right? Um, and that, but in fact, you've let it carry you off uh, to where language is really just talking about itself. And then, uh, it, and so when reality slips away, it also means that the notion that you might find some transcendence, uh, that you might find God, that you might find the divine behind the appearances of the world is also lost to you because uh, from a Muslim perspective, right, the revelation is a verbal artifact. And if you uh, lose the ability to interpret language reliably, or if you begin to s- suspect that language is not reliable, uh, you would be left profoundly on your own in a way that I imagine might be very terrifying. And I don't think Al-Hariri necessarily thought of it in these terms. In fact, I'm pretty sure he didn't explicitly think of it in these terms. Um but it is noteworthy that of all the discourses that he imitates and parodies, there's no theology in here. Um, he, he parodies legal language. He parodies culinary language. He parodies all sorts of things. Um, but theology is more or less left alone. And I think it may be because um, 
it would just force him to confront this abyss in a way that was just a little too direct and maybe frightening uh, in a sense. But I, I, I need to emphasize that this is really my interpretation. It's <laughs> yeah. not something that, you know, he says or anybody says. Um, it, it's just a sense that I get from, from, the, from the, 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 the endless searching that they do. I mean, it's really, it's Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner sometimes. I mean, right. Al-Hadith is always seeking perfect adab, seeking adab, seeking adab. And what is adab exactly? I mean, um, it's... You know the the uh, the early Christians had a had a similar search where uh, you know they'd go into the desert they'd find a, a hermit or an anchorite and they they would always say the same thing in the in the the Greek biographies they would say give me a word give me a word and I think that word that logos is adab essentially um, but now uh, in in the maqamat that search has somehow become transposed onto the level of verbal performance and. God is not the word, right? So God is something beyond the word. Um, and yet it's that sense of feeling trapped, suffocated in a world of language uh, that, that comes through as well. Interesting. So uh, you, you, um, you also quote um, Abdusalam uh, bin Abdul Ali as saying to you that the text was untranslatable in the sense that um, it was it it allowed an infinite number of translations and this also to me seems sort of beautiful and terrifying at the same time um and i just was wondering how you how you came to this how you came to the decision to translate it in this way right um that was a wonderful meeting i mean i met him uh in qatar and he said al-maqamat la tutarjam mm. uh, but he kind of winked as he said it and then he gave me a copy of his of this book he had just written called Liafat uh, al-Gharib, uh, which is a bilingual book. I mean, it's got French on one side and Arabic on the other. And then, you know, I, I read 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 it on the way home on the on the plane, and and he says exactly that, and you've summarized it beautifully. That yeah, it's it's uh, untranslatable just means translatable infinitely many ways, and um, I think that's the only way to grapple with this text. And what I found looking at the history of translation of this book is that. Um, there's a long history of just transposing it essentially for students. So there are at least four Persian um, interlinear translations, only one of which has been published. So it's basically just you've got the text in Arabic and then you've got a student or someone has just you know written the, the, written the Persian equivalents of each word um, under or over the, the, the line. There's even uh, one of these in Gilaki, which is a which is a, a regional Iranian language, um, and it's the first attestation of this language at all. Um, and so this is how we know that non-native speakers were using this text to learn Arabic, right? Um, so uh, there's there's lots of evidence that this was a, a text that 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 people interacted with in different ways. Um, so when looking at the reception of the text in different languages. I noticed that there were these interlinear translations, um, the Persian one, and then, uh, and the modern equivalent of that uh, exists in French and in English. Um, so in French, there's this figure, uh, René Chawem, who translated a great number of classical Arabic works into French, uh, but all in the same way, in this literal way. And so with the Maqamat, he translates them. Uh, and then, you know, the literal meaning of everything and then has a footnote saying this rhymes or this is funny or <laughs> not quite that. But, you know, this is a palindrome, right, which is 
the worst possible thing to do to poor Hariri. I mean, it's just it's terrible. Um, the English translation, um, there are several, but the, the only complete translation into English, which was done by Chenery and Steingas um, in the 19th century, says up front that it, it's, it's there for students. Um, it's, it's just a crib. It's just a kind of, um, just to help people learn Arabic again. Um, so what we know about this is that these translations have had no resonance. These literal translations have had no resonance in their languages. Nobody has heard of the maqamat in English and, and not in French until recently because there's been a rhymed translation of Hamadani, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, and so it's when people actually decide to embrace the wordplay, embrace the difficulty, embrace the impossibility that you get good translations. The ones that stand out are the Hebrew translation, uh, 13th century by uh, Al-Harizi, which imitates just about all of the wordplay in Hebrew and biblicizes all the references. So when there's a Quranic verse in Hariri, there's a verse from the Bible in Harizi. And uh, Abu Zaid is given a name from the Bible and Al-Harith is given a name from the Bible. And it's fantastic. It's absolutely brilliant. And it spawned a whole genre of original maqamas in Hebrew. And that's a whole field of Hebrew literature is this kind of, uh, these kind of maqama-like texts. Uh, another one that stands out is the German translation by Rückert, which is um, from the 19th century by one of the great romantic poets in German. And it had great resonance at the time in German. In fact, if you look at the standard German dictionary now, there are many words that are uh, listed as existing only in Rückert's translation of the Maqamat because he invented them in order to translate Hariri. Uh, so it becomes a kind of canonical text in German in a sense. And the third one is in Russian. There's a Russian translation which um, took many years to complete and three people to do. But it's complete. It's got all the rhymes, all the puns, all the jokes, um, everything. And it was a bestseller in Russia, apparently, and um, you know was was very successful. And so I decided it was pretty clear from the history that the only way to do this was to um, was to attempt something similar. And that's why. So, for example, in the in the passage that uh, that Marcia read at the beginning, the constraint in Arabic is that uh, none of the letters that that the that the uh each word of the text is composed of letters which are arranged so that the first word uses only letters with dots and the second word uses only letters without dots so each in each case the uh, hariri could only use half the letters in the arabic alphabet and he had to alternate uh, whether he used dotted or undotted letters. That's the constraint. And so um, in English, the constraint I decided for that section was that I could only use words of Germanic origin. Um, and so that's why it sounds a bit funny because every word, there's no words from Latin or French in that passage. So that's essentially the strategy was to to impose on myself a constraint that was similar to the one that Al-Hariri imposed on himself. And and yet not at all the same constraint. I mean, I think you, the example you gave sort of explains the whole logic of of your translation approach, which is to find something that sort of mirrors or parallels or or somehow um, works in a similar way, but is not is not the same thing. I mean, so so you 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 found this constraint because English 
has a lot of words that are either Germanic or French of origin. So it kind of splits into these two categories. So uh, you can you can you can then try to compose a text where the words are taken out of two different categories. Um, but it's it's you invented that constraint. It's it's not the same one that that he had. And and similarly, um, you know, with 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 the overall approach, right? It's that um, the the impostures are written uh, in the style of many famous uh, English writers. I mean, after Chaucer, after Virginia Woolf, uh, after uh, Boswell's Life of Johnson, after Huckleberry Finn, and or in the, all these different Englishes: Indian English, Nigerian English, uh, Spanglish. Um, so it's a really, it's a very original approach. Um, I, I, I think it's a real um, gamble what you did, and I, I think it really paid off. Um, but, but I, I also think it took a lot of nerve to go there as a translator. It's quite audacious. I think that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously, uh, obviously, yeah. I'm wondering how. Like, did you from like, how did the idea or the approach solidify? Like, did you try other things first from the, or did you know kind of that you wanted to do it this way almost from the beginning? Um, no, it's a great, I mean, what, what happened was that um, I was asked to contribute something uh, to a festra for Everett Rousen, who was one of my teachers and a fantastic, fantastic uh, scholar and Arabist. And I decided I would, uh, revive a translation of Alhamdani I had done for him, I think in grad school, and I tried to do it as a straight translation, um, and it was bad. Um, and I I apologized to him, you know, via podcast for 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 that translation. Um, it, it 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 tries to simply be clever and witty without really embracing the full complexity of the original. And finally, I decided that the operative principle here was constraint. Um, that what makes it work is the constraint. And Hariri imposed this constraint of rhyme or palindrome or whatever the genre might be that he was doing. Uh, one that Professor Caleto mentions is the tauria, which is the double entendre, where you know a word can mean one of two things and the whole passage, therefore, can mean one thing or something else. Uh, and, and it's that em embracing the constraint. And so... In English, we don't really have rhyme prose. I mean, Gertrude Stein does it, and uh, James Thurber does it. But um, you know, they were both geniuses, and uh, <laughs> and I'm just a hack. So, so I I, I didn't. I decided not to try rhyme prose, uh, at least not you know all the way through. And uh, what ended up happening was, I just said I need to choose some constraint. The other thing that really helped me out was um, my friend Jeannie Miller, professor of Arabic at Toronto, said, hey, you know, this is about showing off what Arabic can do. I, I think you quoted that earlier on. And and so what does Eng – uh, so if you want to write something that shows off what English can do, well, what is fun about English? The thing that's fun about English is that we don't all sound the same, right? Uh, and that there are specialized jargons of all kinds. Uh, of course, every language can do that, but – um, I thought, well, let's just um, see what we can do with English. And that's why there's Virginia Woolf and Shakespeare and Thieves Cant and Psychobabble and corporate um, corporate English and all of these different varieties just to show that this is what English does in the 21st century. 
in the same way that al-Hariri is showing off what he thinks Arabic can do in the 11th century or the 12th century. Mm. Yeah, I really, um, I, I did, I did go back and read some of the Chenery translation, and it did feel like he was watching Netflix, and then he was just telling me, and then the characters walked into a room, and then they argued, <laughs> and they walked out of the room again, and it was, it was okay. Maybe he was, you know, relaying to me what happened in the show, but it wasn't anything like watching the show. And he says in the beginning, he says, you know, it's there's no point in trying to do this. Uh, you know, he gives a fairly devastating rebuttal of my method, you know, avant la lettre. He says, you know, you, you can't, if, if you try to imitate the wordplay, you end up writing something else. It's not what he wrote. And that's true. Um, you know, I, I can't dispute that. But but I agree. I mean, it's, it's um, I think what they call in French, a coup de dictionnaire. I mean, you just, he just translates one word after another. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, though, I think he kind of slips into some eloquence, <laughs> kind of un, unwittingly, and, and Steingast the same way. Um, uh, you know, they they un, they unconsciously start to elevate their language, and it sounds really nice. And I, I have to, you know, uh, I give them credit. I mean, I would often look at what they had done, and in many cases, I borrowed it, and I, I note that when I did it, um, because sometimes, just fortuitously, they come up with something that really works, but mostly not. Mostly <laughs> not. Do we want to do an example? Give an example here of the um, one of the constraints. Uh, that you came up with? I thought we were going to do a, another reading. Sure. So I think um, we had selected uh, one in which um, there is a constraint um, uh, in English. And the, the Arabic constraint is that the dotted and undotted letters alternate not word by word, but letter by letter. So it's undotted, dotted, undotted, dotted, undotted, dotted. Um, and so I'll just read a bit of that in, in Arabic. And then in English, what I chose was what the Ulipo called the prisoner's constraint, where you can't use any letters that have risers or descenders. In other words, any part of the letter that rises above the line, like in a, a B or below the line, like a P, those aren't allowed. Uh, so it gives you about half the letters to work with. So here's just a little bit of that in the original. Akhlaqu sayyidina tuhab wa ba'aqwatihi yulab wa qurbuhu tuhf wa na'yuhu talaf wa khullatuhu nasab wa qati'atuhu nasab wa gharbuhu dhalq wa shuhbuhu ta'talq wa dhalafuhu zan وقويم نهجه بان وذهنه قلب وجرب ونعته شرق وغرب Sir, secure near our emir, no common Saracen. Our caravan careens no more across immense sierras. We raise a canvas near Merv. Ceremonious, our emir immerses us in excess. We consume in awe. Serious, our Cronus on occasion censors us. Even so, we nurse no animus. A sincere man's censure is renown. Serene, our suzerain is a moon, or once seen, warm as a sun, or warmer. No more, no mere vizier, a crassus, no mean sermonizer, severe in war, eximonious, as wise as Seneca or wiser. On our emir's concern versus concur, unanimous, 
Coins run over urn rims. We swim in monies as in a sea. Can men, even men as voracious, as ravenous as we, consume a river so immense? As crewmen on our emir's man-o'-war, we overrun our enemies. We earn ever more income. We amass crowns, ecus, and zuzes. Some emirs crave revenue, ours scorn avarice. Some are vicious misers, ours is never mean or coarse. Some coerce or accuse, ours is never acrimonious. Never sans raison is our main man severe. Awesome as a Caesar, a Mars in war, in merrier venues, easier in manner, warmer, semi-serious, ever a seigneur. Our Omar, our savior, our crown, our source, our suzerain, our more. And I just wanted to ask, um, so what is it? So there are actually several Olipo novels that I, I love. What is it about the, the, the act of constraint that um, tor- torques the language in some way? I think that it's 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 different in every case. Um, one nice example is um, La Disparition by Perec, where uh, there's no E, right? Mm. And uh, so in French, that's sans eux, right? Which sans eux is also without them. Uh, and he's writing it after the Second World War. And as I, as I recall, I think his father died in combat and his mother died in a concentration camp. So he's writing about a diminished world, right? He's living in France after the war when all these people have perished. Uh, and, and so life goes on uh, in this very diminished way. And so that's what the sans is about, right? Um, and so I think, in, you, know, in, you know, authors mean different things by it, but the mistake that people often make is to think that this is sort of a harmless parlor trick that doesn't have any resonance or significance. With Al-Hariri, I think he's taking very seriously this idea that language is somehow miraculous, that it's a gift, uh, or that there's something uncanny and supernatural about it. Uh, and so it should it should accommodate these things. You should still be able to make sense. Arabic should be able to make sense even with one hand tied behind its back. Uh, and I think that's kind of his starting place. I think that's, that's what leads to this kind of experimentation. Um, and as we talked about earlier, I think it leads to a place where ultimately reality slips away and then that's a very frightening place to be but he seemed it seemed like an itch that he needed to scratch to just see what it is that arabic couldn't do and he couldn't find anything um some of these constraints are so extreme and yet he pulled it off i would love to see the original page with the dotted and undotted letters and words because i just imagine that visually it must be so cool to look at um, I, and, and I love that in the English too, you both get a, f- a phonetic effect because you're only using certain letters. So it start you, you hear certain letters so much more than you do in an average sentence and you get the visual effect because there's no going above and, and, be, and below the line. That's one of the nice things about, again, going back to this idea that it's a, it's a writing culture too. And so it's not just about the sound, it's also how things look and, um, it's interesting though. I mean, sometimes, you know, you see a page of the manuscript where things look very striking, as you say, but if you hear it read out loud, you wouldn't know that, uh, that he's imposed this constraint. And that's, that's the other constraint is to make it sound natural despite the constraint. And so, you know, if you listen to Perec, for example, read aloud, 
you can tell it's weird. I mean, there's something weird about it, but you can't tell what it is. It wouldn't occur to you that there's no E anywhere. Um, and so it's it's on multiple levels that, that on the one hand, it's it, it can sometimes be obvious from looking at it, but not from hearing it. So I wanted to discuss something that you touch on several times in the book, um, and the the idea of cultural appropriation, um, particularly with African American vernacular English, but also with other English and other um, other vernaculars and languages that you use. And um, you know, obviously, I don't need to sort of. So you know, you talk a lot about the different different things that you weighed when this, you know considering, of, of course, African-American vernacular English as a, as a language, translating into it as affirming its worthiness rather than as, you know, um, uh, you know, taking it for yourself. And I just wanted to, you to talk a little bit about whether there was a point where you questioned that, where you, where you were on the bubble about <laughs> which, um, which vernaculars, which languages, which registers to use. I, I questioned it at the time, and I question it now. Um, and I'm grateful that no one has uh, criticized me publicly for it, which either means that they haven't noticed, uh, which is worrisome, or that they were persuaded by my reasoning, and I, I hope it's the second. Um, but in consulting with people about this, um, I heard over and over again that when people – face the possibility of their language being used by someone who's not a member of their community. Um, they, they, they want three things. They want you to be respectful, uh, listen to them when they tell you what works and what doesn't, and they want to be compensated. And so I had a pretty strict policy about if it was a living language to uh, find informants, to uh, consult with them on every step and to make sure that they were paid as editors or consultants, which NYU Press uh, brilliantly took care of and, and, and did without any question. And so the result has been uh, in collaboration with somebody who thought this was a good idea now, or at least decided to join me in this experiment, which doesn't, of course, mean that every member of those communities is going to agree. It just means that one person did. And I think that's all I can do. Uh, is, is to do that. And so, for example, the, there are, and of course, African-American English is, is a complex entity. So there's one maqama, which is in Harlem Jive. Um, and that's a very specific kind of language. I mean, it, it comes from the language used by musicians and entertainers in the mid 20th century. And it's not a living language anymore. I mean, there aren't new speakers being born, right? So it's just as much of an artifact as, you know, medieval Arabic. Uh but the thing is, it was documented by three African-American writers. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston wrote a story in it with a glossary that's very much like these maqamat. Um, uh, Cab Calloway wrote a little um, a glossary of it, um, which is great. I had no idea. I mean, I, I love him as a performer. I had no idea he was a philologist, which he was. Um, uh, and then there was an African-American sports writer and journalist who compiled... Uh, uh, an actual lexicon of this. And I thought, my God, I mean, why should I allow squeamishness, you know, our 20th century squeamishness about these things to get in the way of bringing this 
to a a wider audience. I mean, I don't think people know about this tradition of African American, or at least I didn't know. I'm not a specialist in African American literature, but there's this vibrant tradition of people documenting their own language. Um, And, um, you know, the writer of the lexicon even says at one point, you know, even white people can learn to speak if they read my book, right? And he translates Shakespeare and Wordsworth into these, uh, into this Harlem jive. And it's important to note, of course, that, you know, he's creating a literary language. I don't think people walked around speaking this way, right? So just as the maqama is a contrivance, I mean, people didn't walk around Basra speaking in rhyme. Uh, I don't think people walked around Harlem speaking in jive from morning till night. Um, so the result on the page is, is a contrivance. It's a literary uh, artifact based on looking through these books, uh, you know, pulling at my, I don't really have any hair, but I, you know, if I did, I was figuratively pulling at it and constructing all of this artificially. And then I ran it by a linguist, um, Nandy Sims, who um, made a number of suggestions for improving it. And there it was. So, um, and if, you know, readers who look at the actual maqam and at the text will notice that every single phrase that I use is documented. There's a, there's a note saying where I got it. And because there's a lot of preaching, I listened to a lot of current day sermons, tried not to use the actual words so much as the structure. Um, and so I, I think I've ticked the boxes of approaching it respectfully, listening to what members of the community have to say and making sure everybody involved was compensated for their time and effort. Uh, if somebody still thinks I shouldn't do it, well, you know, I respect that. I respect that verdict. Um, but so far, uh, no one has. And I'm, I'm very grateful. But I'm not sure, again, whether that's just because they don't know about it yet. Well, I mean, one thing I think uh, in relation to this um, is that is that there's something about the character of it being, you know, such a series, right? Like, um, it's not that you put a single work into into one of these vernaculars it's that they are being included in this like really far ranging series and so much of the of the imposter's power for me was was that kind of playful repetition right the way in a game like things happen again and again and again with minute variations and like it kind of clicked for me after i'd read the first i would say dozen where I started to like look forward to what's the next one going to be and and really sometimes just like smile in surprise at what it was coming as and I think in that sense too I mean obviously you've been very thoughtful about this and I think it is really important to like you say have have uh, consultants whose help is is valued including financially um, but I also think the way it's done where it's, it's, it's sort of part of this bigger game and it feels like being included in this sort of huge um, kind of fun panorama of English. Um, I mean, I would be surprised if, if, if people took offense. I'm I'm glad to hear that, and uh, I'm glad you've led us here because I, I do want to emphasize how collaborative all of this is, and it's one of the great things about the Library of Arabic Literature project is that I've learned that you know all translation should be done in you know with as much help as possible and with as much input as possible, and I got fantastic feedback from all the members of the editorial board and everyone I worked with. And people were so generous. I mean, I, I reached out to, for example, I did one in, in what's called Jafakan, which is kind of current London slang. 
based partly on Jamaican English and partly on Cockney. And there's this young guy on YouTube who um, does these really funny kind of comedy routines. Uh, his name is Mel Tom, and I learned Jafakin from listening to him. And then I wrote to him and said, Mel, would you please correct this for me? And he was glad to do it, and he sent it right back. And, um, and you know, I was expecting he might, you know, some kind of resistance. But, you know, he's a performer, and he's he's um, set himself up. I mean, his his particular angle on things is that he's the authority on this language and, and this sensibility. And, and when I, when it came back with very few corrections, um, he made some suggestions of things to add um, and a few corrections. He said, well, the, the, the works you were using, like these dictionaries online that you found are, you know, a few years old. So we don't say that anymore. And uh, okay, great. You know um, but the fact that he embraced it and got what I was trying to do and actually liked it, um, it was a source of immense gratification for me. So I just want to kind of shout out to everybody that, and he's one of many, you know, everybody, everyone I approached, nobody said, don't do it, or I don't want to help you. So one of the things I really liked uh, about these two was this sort of joy of recognition that I can imagine uh, a reader sometimes feeling in, in Arabic as well, when you sort of get, so you're you're reading along, you're listening along and you sort of get the, the trick of it. Uh, because, you know, so say for Virginia Woolf, obviously you say in the introduction that it's Wolfian, but it's, in some way it took me uh, some sentences to get into it, to get into the rhythm and to finally feel, ah, now I feel, I recognize, I hear Mrs. Dalloway here, or, um, or you know, or or I could, you know, I mean, of course, the corporate language instantaneously sort of smacked <laughs> me in the face since, <laughs> since that's a language maybe I see on a daily basis. I'm, I'm so glad it worked. And the hope is that, you know, there's, there's some that everyone, uh, for, for every, for any given English reader, I'm hoping that there are some that have that familiar ring and others that um, are difficult. I mean, a lot of people have said the Nigerian one is difficult because I mean, there, there I cheated a bit. I mean, Niger is its own language at this point. Um, it's it, connection to English is <laughs> increasingly frayed and it's, it's, you know, it's become a, a a kind of lingua franca for all Nigerians and it's got its own dynamics now. And, and that's why I'm very grateful to Richard Ali for essentially rewriting it. And, um, you know, a lot of people who aren't Nigerian obviously have trouble with it. I still have trouble. I look back at it now. I don't remember what all of it means, but I think that inclusion is absolutely necessary. I mean, English is a global language and that partly means that we can all talk to each other. I mean, Richard is multilingual and we speak in standard English together, but he can do this, you know, he can just switch over into another language and it's related to English. So it's part of that English sphere. Um, and I just thought, Hey, let's include it. Um, and I'm glad I did. And I wish I could have done more. You know, I didn't do Maltese English, but <laughs> can't do everything. <laughs> so. Um. Well, are are we gonna? We're gonna get one more uh, example from the from the book, right? I mean, we could. The thing is, I feel like we could go on exchanging our favorites and like um, talking about which ones. I I'm all the way out here in California right now, and the one that you wrote in different variations of Spanglish. Um, for some reason, I don't know. And you, and you, and you, and, the, and you made that choice because it's a story that is situated, I mean, quite playfully in, in, in the original, it's in the Arab West, it's in the Maghreb. And so you say like, you went to the West of English and I'm actually out here 
Um, and and that just that just made me laugh, like as 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 I was reading, and the the recognition of it, like because I was able to read it fairly easily. That was not one that was hard for me because I can kind of read Spanish, and and so there was that added joy of like getting it. Um, it was I, I I just and I think we all probably have 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 different ones and plenty of them that uh, that sort of tickled us. Um, Although there but, were, you know, so for instance, in the corporate speech, I've never heard somebody rubbing the rhubarb. Uh, <laughs> what? I don't know what that is, but I got it. I got it. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, the thing is that this, I mean, th- these are constructed, at, I mean, at they're constructions, right? And, and you know, when you put, um, you know, I've put the original in front of native speakers and they often, they're like the, exactly that reaction. They say, well, you know, I get what's going on basically, but I don't know this word. I don't know that word. And then this word sounds like this, but maybe not. And if that happens in the English, that to me is okay. Um, and the fact that there's a glossary for these is also part of the idea because, you know, the original maqamat have heavy commentaries. And so if you say, well, you know, I don't know what that means. That to me, I'm, I'm replicating the experience um, of reading the original, and again, stepping back from claiming that anyone ever really sounds like this, right? It's it's a construct, and rub the rhubarb is alliterative. So I was like, great, I'm going to use it. I don't care whether anybody says it, you know. Um, I have one source somewhere, and maybe it may be that it's British, um, because some of the sites that do corporate speak um, turned out I was using British ones, and I, I tried to keep it American, but I think a lot of Britishisms got in there because some of the best sites, uh, websites where people mock this, are in Britain. So, um, so it may be that it's you know a regional one that may be. And you've probably invented words for this or expressions, like you said another translator had done. Yeah, Rückert invented words uh, unceasingly. I tried not to overdo that, um, except in the one maqama, which is like Lewis Carroll's Jabberwock, where it's, uh, you know, all nonsense. That I is completely made up. But otherwise, I tried to stick with the attested jargons that people, uh, that I could find someone actually using on YouTube or online or, you know, uh, Okay. In, in 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 dictionaries or whatever it might be. So I, I tried not to invent too many words except in that one. So you gave yourself another constraint that it had to be existing English somewhere. Y- yes. And when I didn't, I kind of had this philological qualm and made a note of it in the in the end notes just to confess that I had done that. Okay. Um, so we're going we're gonna to read one, one more. Which, which one are we going to, we're going to end the episode on a reading. Um, which, which one are we going to go into? Number seven. And can you just set this up? Can you tell me the, uh, remind me what the frame for this one is? So this is one of several uh, maqamat where Abu Zaid pulls off a scam on the onlookers. And in this case, he's pretending to be blind. And he has a colleague uh, who's an old woman who's got poems uh, written on paper uh, that she hands out to the spectators and, and says, if you like the poem, here's the poet. He's blind. Give us money. Uh, and, and the poet is Abu Zaid and he's not blind, but um, but it's the whole thing is a scam. So... Um, 
Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, you you get the poem, so it's uh, it, it you get you get something, you get words, but uh, you're you're not actually charitably helping someone who is who is uh, suffering from a disability. So that's that's kind of the dishonesty part. Um, and so I decided to do it in the language of uh, compiled by a man called James Matzell, who was the chief of police of New York in the 19th century, one of several competing chiefs of police. And he compiled a lexicon of the the language of beggars and thieves and criminals, um, which was used in the film Gangs of New York in the Scorsese film. And there are several scenes where people speak in it, and it's absolutely brilliant. Um, so Daniel Day-Lewis has a scene where he speaks it. He actually speaks in it continuously, and it's really well done when he does it. Leonardo DiCaprio, not so much. Um, so, so it's in that language. Um, so I'll just read a bit of the Arabic. And um, so here goes. حَكَ الْحَرِثُ بِنْ هَمَّامٍ قَالْ أَزْمَعْتُ شُخُوصَ مِنْ بَرْقَعِيدٍ وَقَدْ شِمْتُ بَرْقَعِيدٍ فَكَرِهْتُ الرِّحْلَ عَنْ تِلْكَ الْمَدِينَةِ أَوْ أَشْهَدَ بِهَا يَوْمَ الزِّينَةِ فَلَمَّا ظَلَّ بِفَرْضِهِ وَنَفْلِهِ وأجلب بخيلي ورجله اتبعت السنة السنة في لبس الجديد وبرزت مع من برز للتعبيد وحين التأم جمع المصلى وانتظم وأخذ الزحام بالقضم That's just enough to get us started <laughs> And I'm not sure what accent people would have used at that time, but here's my best attempt at something like a New York accent. I was set to leg it out of Barkaid, but I could smell the festival gathering like a storm, and I didn't want to hop the twig before the Jeffy. When the Bayram came, with its row and fanfare, its liturgies and articles, I upheld ancient custom and sallied out rum-togged in a new set of duds. Around the autumn, the stir had gotten in Kelta, and the, the coves in the push was starting to whiffle. Just then, an old shop in tats rose to his feet. Over his peepers was a tatty tog, and under his rammer a knapsack. An old hen with a bracket mug was leading him around. Staggering, he moves the salutation. Then he dipped into his bag and took out some pieces of script scratched in different colors. Handing to the harridan, he told her to gun the flats in the push. If any looked bene and plump, she was to give them each a stiff. As old shoe would have it, one of the gape seeds came to me. On it was disc libe. Old Paja has made me swim for my swag, but Lenten in my penny is my paplap. For his sweet sake, tip us a rag. I've been rooked by curlers who sweat the bag. I've been bilked by burners for a goose cap. Old Paja has made me swim for my swag. If only I could square it and turn stag, but Kinchin needs scran in his flatter trap. For his sweet sake, tip us a rag. I've been kimbawed and tied with a gag, and lost my regulars after the scrap. Old Paja has made me swim for my swag. He's made me heave Peter's off a drag, and when my squeaker windows I tap, for his sweet sake, slip us a rag. I'm rum bit by the best, not to brag. By coves that lace and coves that snap, Old Paja has made me swim for my swag. For our sweet sake, tip us a rag. 
Bravo. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> that was very good. Thank it you. Was. It was. <laughs> there's there's a number that I would not I would not know how to read out loud, like in the old English ones and so many of them. That was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you um, so much. And um and, and really thanks so much for joining us. Um it's been it's been a great opportunity to talk about this really brilliant work and um yeah, thank thanks thanks so much for being on Bulak. It's fantastic and it's been a great opportunity. Um you guys are doing great work. Keep it up. It's been a privilege. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.